This podcast is brought to you by the Spare Time Legends Podcast Network. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Get Geeked. Brought to you by GeekFest and Sin City Comics. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a special edition of Get Geeked. It's definitely your favorite nerd and pop culture podcast, just because I said so. Get Geeked, the official podcast of GeekFest, of course, which is now behind us for its first year. Uh, It was a wonderful weekend. It was an emotional weekend. It was an exhausting weekend, but in all the right ways, uh, it was just fantastic. I'm still sitting in kind of a haze from it, if I'm honest. I'm still kicking the dust up from everything that went on. It was absolutely, it was an absolutely amazing weekend, uh, during which one of my favorite parts of these cons is that you always get to meet some great people, uh, and and this was no exception. I got to meet a fellow podcaster, and I love to meet fellow podcasters. Uh, so I'd like you all to welcome him. He's my guest uh, this week, um, and he was you know he was there. He was gracious enough to actually record at some of the uh, the panels or at all of the Q and As. Uh, as our listeners know, we've had some trouble with our equipment not being very mobile, um, but but he jumped in and he helped us out and he taped them and I'm forever gracious for that. Um, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome from the Gallifrey Stands podcast, Doctor Squee. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you very much, Pat, for that wonderful intro and for welcoming to you to your podcast. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's I'm more than happy for you to be here. The first thing you guys need to know and need to do is to, of course, go ahead and subscribe to the Gallifrey Stands podcast. Download the most recent episode because that is essentially Geek Fest part one and this is going to be geeked fest part two so if you want to hear all the stuff we recorded uh squee there uh recorded some great uh cute uh, some great little you know conversations with people just kind of on the streets man on the street type of thing spoke to some vendors spoke to some uh, of the cosplayers spoke to some some of the celebs as well as we did the full-on q a's and panels and uh you know for those of you've listened for a while i did it i got to bust my q a cherry i was uh it was definitely squeaky bum time but we got there in the end and uh yourself doctor you were polite enough and friendly enough to record that for us so now the listeners both yours and mine can hear those as well yeah it's some absolutely great panels uh just while i remember it's episode 69 you get to be my 69 uh for the podcast uh of gallifrey stands that couldn't have gone better one it's it's perfect timing as far as i'm concerned absolutely and it's so much better with another person yes yeah on Uh, your own it's a little awkward yeah, but yeah, the panels were absolutely great. Uh, some of the stuff the guys were coming out with, uh, I was actually a little bit nervous going into these because some of the people who were there I'd already interviewed. So I was worried, it's like, would we get something different? Would we kind of have extra mm-hmm. stuff to talk about? But these uh, guys are so interesting and they've got so many stories to spare that um, you'd have to talk to them for years to, to run out of uh, interesting anecdotes to get from them. And for me, it was kind of people like uh, John Levine, who uh, is on, on my part of the chat, who was uh, Sergeant Benson on Doctor Who, is just uh, such an interesting guy and such a showman. And and people like uh, Ian McInerney, who uh, was from Game of Thrones, and, and he sort of gave a sort of almost uh, inside the actor studio type um, yeah. of talk, where he, where he had these great uh, insights into what it's like to work on a production like Game of Thrones. And then you've got, uh, of course, John Chalice, who was Boise in, in Only Fools and Horses. And for, from my point of view, I was very excited that he'd been dug to who and to talk to him about that. But but yeah, just someone who played a character for that many years 
of course he's just going to have um yeah he he gets sweet all day long about it and and still be coming up with fresh new stuff so uh it was just a privilege really no it was great and uh you know especially for, i mean all it was great to meet everybody uh ian's as you said was so much fun for me because i definitely didn't want to make it uh Firstly, at all about myself, or to look like I was trying to get over, as as we would say in wrestling terms, um, I really just wanted to lay back, be chilled, and let them do you know all the talking and kind of point directions where where I needed to. Uh, and I thought with Ian, it was just just great. I mean, I was I thoroughly enjoyed it uh, to the point that I you know kind of forgot I had to ask questions a couple of times because I was just sitting back relaxing. He was you know a fantastic storyteller, really took you in depth about you know everything that goes on in such a huge production. Um, and then to be talking to John Chalice, who was Boisu, who I literally grew up watching, um, was yeah. was crazy. I you know I went a little I went a little fanboy and shared a story with him and got goosebumpy at one point. But his smile seemed genuine. I don't know if he was creeped out. He didn't seem to be. So you know, but that's gonna happen because I literally grew up watching him. Um, and then we were we, there was the plan to do a, a panel or a Q and A with James Kahn as well, um, the uh, the fantastic author, of course. Um, but uh, with the cosplaying happening in the middle of the day, our, our crowd kind of got split at a certain point. Um, so yeah. that didn't end up happening, unfortunately. Um, but what did happen was uh, James and his lovely wife Jill took my myself and my wife Rachel out. Uh, we we drove them home after the show. Uh, we went for a drink and just got to sit down and chat. Uh, and boy, is James Conn an interesting individual. Yeah, um, I mean, I'd really love to have sat down and talked with him. But, yeah, I, unfortunately, I didn't get around to doing that either. And uh, just as you said in, in uh, the part one of this chat, is that uh, the guys who organized GeekFest, uh, uh, Shane and all the rest of the guys, just did a fantastic job. I think they've learned stuff which they can take forward into year two. But what a, what a great opening act for a new event, which I, I hope is going to become a regular thing. And, and some great guests. Yeah, it, it was a marvelous weekend. It was great. And it was, I mean, everybody who was there, everybody who attended, the guests, uh, all said that they had a great time. Uh, they were, you know, very gracious for how they were treated. And, and it was just great. You know, uh, it was a great weekend. I keep using the word great, but that's, you know, that's because that's what it was. Uh, there was no, you know, no negative. There was a little bit of negativity a couple of times, but you're going to get that when you get that many people in a big room like that. Um, but it was the first go of Geeked Fest. And I thought it went, I, I thought it went unbelievably well. Um, I had an amazing time. I got to meet some great people, as I said. Um, and just, you know, I was exhausted by the end. I'm sure you guys were as well. Um, but it's that good exhausted, isn't it? It's that that welcoming exhaustion, I think. Um, Completely, it, yeah. It was just a great weekend. Uh, and, you know, lots of great pictures went up, as you guys have seen. Um, so, you know, we can jump in at this moment then and uh, have a listen to, um, you know, as you said, inside the actor studio sort of um, discussion uh McInerney, is that what we've decided that's what we've landed on i'm going with McInerney, but McInerney. I, I, i'm not sure i uh, said exactly yeah i sat down with ian McInerney, who plays obviously sir bannister on game of thrones is it sir bannister or bannister because we can't my listeners will I hate on bannister me. bannister again so i'm think... gonna go with bannister but i could be very wrong right. I, i've watched every episode but like there's just so much going on with game of thrones i have to kind of keep on watching back to to work out everything that's going on so i one one thing i must say is i was amazed by was that this guy seems to have an encyclopedic knowledge of everything that was happening in game of thrones he read the books which obviously helped but yeah. uh i thought that was fantastic i can't keep track of it Please, you fool! I mean, we'll forgive our, our most gracious guest, Dr. Squee, there, but it's Barristan! Sir Barristan the Bold! What are you talking about, Bannister? Man, you know, you get all this opportunity to do Q&As and panels, and then you say a character's name wrong. Like a Momo. But hey, 
I guess at least I'm consistent, right, listeners? <laughs> so, it was my conversation with Mr. Ian McElhenney, who plays, of course, Barristan the Bold. We had a great Q&A sit-down at GeekFest, and let's take a listen to that right now. South Africa, I've had everything. But I've well, it's known funny, that. somebody just said to me earlier on today, are you from Canada? Did they? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got something to come say, out. 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 My wife says it more Canadian. She's out. See, she's, oh, no. <laughs> she's more freshly Canadian than me. Rachel, say out again. Out. Out. See. Out. There's some wee connection between Canada and North. Well, in fact, there's a big connection because an awful lot of us went my uncle and a number of cousins all moved to Canada. This is donkeys years ago. But uh, it, there's definitely something of the Northern Irish accent that's crept into the Canadian accent. You're, whether you like it or not, you're all mongrels, really. You know what I mean? You know? <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps a nicer word is hybrids. You know? <laughs> it's the modern age word of it, isn't you know, it? <laughs> well, it's deli- I'm delighted to see some Game of Thrones fans here, despite the rugby, yeah. despite the fact that Ireland are Dare I say it, thrashing worlds? I <laughs> <laughs> don't know what happened there, but there you go. Uh, anyway, <laughs> say that again. Well, no, that's an interesting. Did you not rate Gatland then? I like it, and it's just a crap one today. Yeah, yeah, it just hasn't happened today, but there's no. something. Yeah. So, Game of Thrones. Who wants to know what? It's very freeform, guys. Feel free to ask questions, yeah. comments. It's very freeform, laid yeah. back. It's more of a chat. This is more like, quote, a seminar than a lecture. Really. <laughs> yeah. 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 They say in your fight scene, you went down with the Harpy, Sons of the Harpies. You were a total badass, right? Yeah, well, was thank that, you was for that. that. Was that all you, or did you have someone else? Believe it or not, it was all me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, the thing with those is, first of all, the... Um, Harpies, um, this is one of the advantages of them all having masks. They're all stuntmen. Yeah. <laughs> Every single one of them was a stuntman. So I worked with the stunt team, and there was a fight coordinator, you know, and we just practiced the moves uh, until you kind of like, they became muscle memory. That's always the trouble. When you're in the midst of a fight, you think, oh, what's the next move? What's the next move? And you're stuck. So you just have to practice enough that you know what the moves are. And uh, and uh, we did that enough that that was the case. The other weird thing is, it, even if it reads quite fast, you don't actually do it quite fast. Because if you do it too fast, you, your head gets scrambled, and you forget what you're doing, and somebody gets hurt. So you actually do it at steady measure. Do you know what I mean? You know, you, there's pace on it, yeah, but it's not frantic. Um, and uh, I guess because it was a reasonably long fight, we did it basically in two parts. The first part is the bit where Barrison seems to be in charge and dealing with people and killing them off. And then the second part is the bit where they 
get the better of him. There's a point where he gets kind of kicked in the side and it puts him off balance. And from there on, the, 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 the advantage is with them. So we, we filmed the first part where he's in charge and then once that was completed, we finished the film, the second part where they're in charge. But at least, uh, at least he went down gloriously, you know. He did what he said he was going to do, uh, you know, I, I will die a night, you know. You know. Uh, I was disappointed though that he went when he did because I thought he was good for a few years, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but there you go. That's the way these things go. Yeah. What was your favourite moment filming Game of Thrones? Well, the fight obviously was, you know, great fun to do. But I think, you know, my favourite moment is probably the one that has been most favoured by the public, and that is the one where I tell Joffrey that he's a miserable little shit. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I think, you know, because uh, you know he's he is. And, and somebody needed to say it to him, so it, it was quite sort of fun to sort of throw the sword at him and storm out of the building. Um, he's actually a very nice lad, but uh, tough. He, he, you know, his character was miserable. And um, Cersei's character is miserable too, so I was only too happy to get out of that, you know, that particular place. The only downside of that was, in that particular year, that the, 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 the costume, the upper part of that costume, incredibly light, it's made of fiberglass. But the skirt, and it was a skirt, is all brass leaf, like hundreds of little leaves of brass. And it weighs a ton. And it, it, it pulls you down into the ground. And I had boots that were probably not the best boots, but the extra weight of the skirt pulling me down into the boots did not help. I think they were too soft on the top. So it meant that they were uh, really pressing on my toes and I, my toes by this stage were skinned, or at least a couple of toes were skinned. And uh, you know, when I throw the sword down and turn around, it's actually a dirty great big long hall. And you have to walk, I don't know, 50 yards to get out of the hall and slam the door behind you. And you know, typical film, that was great, we'll do it again. We'll do it again. We'll do it again. <laughs> so the point where I'm saying, I'm fed up throwing this sword at this fellow. You know, surely we've got a shot because my feet are killing me, but I had to keep on doing it anyway. Um, but that scene, you guys probably know because I'm not really across uh, all this social media stuff, to be honest. But uh, that scene, I think, is, is called on Twitter or something like, or on Facebook or whatever the hell it is, it's called something like. Uh, how to, uh, how to quit your job, or 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 barracks, <laughs> quit like a boss. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, apparently, it's had a huge number of hits. Yeah. You know, you know. So uh, that's nice to know. It's nice to know. Someday I might actually, in reality, in life, I might actually mimic Barrison and tell somebody to go and take a flight. You know, if I don't like the job they're offering me. You know. As long as it's not the organizers of Geek Fest 2016. No, 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 no. The danger of that. I can imagine that a lot of long hours filming such a such a show. You know, it's not a normal sitcom where you put on jeans and a t-shirt and jump onto the stage. So I can imagine there's a lot of times where you were just saying, "Shoot it again, shoot it again, shoot it again." I can imagine there's a great deal of times where you've had 12 hours of filming. Because some of us may not know how long it takes to put together yeah. even a two-minute scene in a film can oh take God, yeah. days and days and days. So I imagine there's a lot of times where you're thinking to yourself, 
Take 306. Well, uh, some of those scenes, I'll give you an example. Um, now, what's a complicated scene? In uh, series three, where we are leaving Astapor, and Krasny thinks he's getting a dragon, and in return we're getting the 8,000 Unsullied. Uh, that was shot. I mean, all of that season for, for our particular part of the story was all of it was shot in Morocco. And that was shot in a place called uh, Warzazat, which has for a long, long time been a film studio base, going right back to the days of Lawrence of Arabia. And it's right, it's more or less, you, you've gone through the Atlas Mountains, you're more or less on the edge of the desert there. And the Kingdom of Heaven set is still standing uh, in that studio lot in Wazazat. And we filmed that in the Kingdom of Heaven set. But because you needed to get 8,000 unsullied, or the impression of 8,000 unsullied in this big square, what happened is that shooting one way, shooting you know those of us who are at the heart of the story, so Daenerys and, and, and those of us who are on our team, Jorah, myself, and, and the Sandy and Grey Worm, um, and Krasnys, of course, and his attendants. Shooting that, we shot actually on that set, looking at one wall of that set, which was like a sort of a, 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 a what read like a central square in a township. Shooting the other way, we actually went outside into the desert. It's all flat, sort of burnt earth all around this. We went outside, I probably went about a hundred yards beyond the outside wall. And we had, you know, in theory there's 8,000 unsullied. We had probably about 600, which is already a lot of people. 600 extras. Um, and they'd be lined up in sort of like small regimental units and you'd film them in all sorts of different ways so that then they could be doubled up and doubled up and doubled up again so that once you see it in CGI with the CGI added you actually think there are 8,000 people there you know so that was done outside because the only way we create the space even for the number we had and then when they start walking this was at a later point in another scene after, you know, as they, after the battle, when they leave uh, Astapor, they're walking out. And in order, you know, if you think of 8,000 feet trampling over, uh, you know, uh, desert, dust will be brought up by the feet. So behind the 600 that were sort of being filmed, every so often, as they walked, a Land Rover would scoot across the back churning up dust so at least you get that dust effect you know so when you do add it in you get that sense of reality you know as well so it's extraordinary just seeing that kind of attention to detail but that scene because it involves so many people the actual core of it is it's been quite short I mean basically he thinks he's getting the dragon she says here you are at the point where he gets the dragon it won't behave she now knows she's got control of the unsullied and next thing the dragons are like you know burns the bajazes out of them and that's it. Um, well, that's, um, that scene was filmed over three days because it's just a big event. Um, and that scene uh, on the screen is, it might be three minutes, mm -hmm. might be three minutes, yeah. I've doubt if it is even, you know. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing you're up against. I mean, 
what they're extremely good at in Game of Thrones, and it's one way, if you, I don't know how many of you know the books, but if you read the books, it's very detailed and books have the time to be detailed. Game of Thrones somehow or another has to give you, the, 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 the TV series has to give you the big picture condensed. So what you do is you try and find you know, a, a big event scene, get all your necessary sort of principal characters into that scene so that you're telling their story. But one big scene is kind of covering a big part of that storyline. If you were to look at the Game of Thrones scripts, you'd see that a lot. They use a lot of big scenes, uh, which are three, four, five, whatever pages long. And if necessary, they're shot over two, three days, you know. Um, Whereas ordinarily when you do a TV thing, it's very probable you'll go in and on one day there's, let's say for argument's sake, there's six scenes on the list. And you reckon actually six scenes is doable. You know, we can, we can actually, oh, uh, see you girls. <laughs> we can actually sort of like, you know, complete six scenes in a day. But with Game of Thrones, it's a whole different ball game because, you know, it's written differently. You know, any Game of Thrones uh, script, hour-long script, probably has, on average, 20 to 25 scenes, no more, you know? In fact, sometimes less, because quite a lot of those scenes would be big scenes trying to kind of comprise quite a substantial part of the story, you know? Um, so it's, uh, and then of course if you think about it, you know, I mean, if you're doing a scene like that, I mean, uh, the extras all have to be costumed, probably not necessarily made up because they're not going to be shot in that close detail, but they've got to be costumed and ready for purpose at the start of a shooting day. Now your shooting day starts at 8 and finishes at 7. In fact, with Game of Thrones it finishes at 6.30 because they do what's called a rolling lunch. Ordinarily, a shooting day is an 11-day shoot, an 11-hour shoot. So you start at 8, you finish at 7. If you do a rolling lunch, you don't officially stop for one hour of lunch. You accept that as people become available, they get fed. So in fact, you know, uh, you do a 10-and-a-half-hour day. Now, with the nature of film, at any point in time, there will be certain departments, certain individuals, you're free. You're not needed for the next half hour. You go and get you'd go and eat now. Problem if you're an actor is that they'll say, oh, you're free, they're setting up the camera. You'll get your dinner, and then they'll say, all right, we're ready. And you say, I've only just started, I've just got, later, we'll look after it for you. You come back, a thousand flies have devoured it, or done something else to it that you don't want to know about. And you know, uh, so you know, that was one frustration actually, apart from the heat of course, but one frustration of working in, 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 in the desert in Morocco, in particular, was uh, flies and food. You know, it was impossible. So you kind of—I uh, was going to say—you didn't overeat. Normally, people complain when they go on films that they eat far too much. You certainly didn't in that particular case. Although I happened to notice one picture of me downstairs with uh, with Jora and with um, Daenerys. And quite frankly, from my point of view, it's very unflattering. I look like I might be pregnant. You know, uh, I don't quite know where that came from, but there you go. That's, that's life. Um, yeah. So, the extras, in order for them to be ready at four, I kid you not, 
they're going in, they're going in, and, and the people who have to get them ready, the costume department, there's a whole costume department and makeup department for extras alone. They're going in to work at 3.34 in the morning. The principals, you're usually picked up around 6 so that you're ready for 8 o'clock. Because you've got you to get in, you've got to get fed, you've got to get your costume on, you've got to go through makeup and hair. Uh, now, with the men, generally, it's not a big deal for makeup and hair, but you, you still have to go. We, we, sometimes you might get dirtied up, and that takes a bit of time. So, generally, you'd be getting up at 6 to start shooting at 8. And by the time you finish at 7 and get home, it could be 8 o'clock, 8.30. By the time you have a bite to eat, uh, a quick pint at the bar, you better get to bed because you're going to be up in six hours. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's, they're long days and they're not, you kind of think it must be very sociable and it can be. But if you're, if you're on, you know, if you're working day and daily, then it's just, you know, quite long days and, and not much downtime, really, not much social time. Um, but the women, it's worse for them because. Someone like Daenerys, I mean, she, she's actually dark haired, so she has to get that, that wonderful wig on. That takes quite a bit of time. Uh, in fact, it takes a lot of time. So I would be getting picked up at 6, she'd be getting picked up at 4.30. You know. so. so it's a glamorous life, but it's, it's a long and tedious life. Yeah. <laughs> when you talk about costuming, especially for things Game of Thrones specifically, I picture the costume department as a warehouse of just clothing because obviously any extras could show up and they got yeah. to get to clothe them and yeah. is some of that stuff is it all made is it just built and it's just there for everyone do you think or is you it know I think from what I gather most of that is made just all handmade by somebody yeah. can you imagine by made by somebody you know what I mean I mean there's there's a designer across yeah, it of course but, but there are people out there making it because so much of the stuff is you're not going to go to the likes of angels and find it exactly, you know what I mean yes so uh, somebody has to, you know, decide on how they're going to, you know. The great thing about Game of Thrones is because it's fictional mm. uh, and because it is not tied to a specific uh, time or place. Yeah. You as the designer have the freedom to pull your designs from whatever source you want. So, I mean, it's been influenced at different points by, say, uh, you know, the, the, the main dynasty or the Aztec dynasty or medieval Britain or whatever it might be, there's influences from every part of the world yeah. at some point in those costumes. Yeah. So it gives them wonderful freedom to be imaginative. Yeah. But then, you know, those costumes in all probability, they're not out there, so they're going to be made. Yeah. So you imagine somebody's made all those by hand, probably. Yeah. Every intricate design that you see on a shirt and in, in, interlaid into things, yeah. somebody sat there with... Somebody's actually worked their way of making those things. Absolutely. and, and uh, same with the armory. Of course, you yeah. know all yeah. those unsullied helmets. They're very uncomfortable for the boys to wear, but uh, they mask most of the face. But each of those has to be made. Yeah. You know, so uh, you know there's a huge, huge, huge. I mean, you have to hand it to them. I think where Game of Thrones is really scored. I mean, every year, of course, the CGI gets better and better and better. But where it's really scored is that you see the money on the screen. You know. Yeah. If you stop and think about how many people are in that scene, mm. they're all wearing individualized costumes. They're often wearing individualized armor. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I mean, all of the, uh, the principles, our swords would have been distinctive. You know, yeah. that's your sword and nobody else's. Um, you know, you think, oh, there's a massive, massive, massive budget on that. The way it works even with the uh, structuring of the, of the shoot, if, you know, there's ten episodes, there might be 
three or four or five, I think the most I ever worked with on any one season was five directors. In fact, six, because one of them was a, a, a two-man outfit, if you like. Um, so every director is covering one or possibly two or possibly even three episodes. Yeah. Now that director, it's his episode. In his episode or her episode, the story may there may be several different storylines, ones at the wall and others with Daenerys and others at King's Landing and others down in Dorne, you name it. That person, and not just that person, not just that director, but their team, in other words, their, their cameraman, their lighting cameraman, and their first AD, who's the person who controls what happens on the set, they have to cover every location for their episode. So that means this week they might be filming in Belfast, that next week they're filming in Iceland, next week they're filming in, 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 in Croatia or next month, whatever it may be. <coughs> so there's a huge logistical issue of just moving these different personnel around from one location to another to another. You know? yeah. So it, it's a massive, it is a massive operation. And then the sets, the sets are stunning, yeah. stunning. You know? So you can see, when you look at it, you say, I can kind of see where the money's going yeah. because it looks, it has a great yeah. look and there's a lot of fantastic craftsmanship has gone into each and every department of it and there really is, it's phenomenal to look at. Yeah. Which is why, uh, for my, even for my wife and I ourselves, if there's a show that we genuinely love and appreciate, we make sure to go and buy the Blu-ray box sets and all yeah. that because, yeah. sure, we all know you can download a film from time to time, yeah. whatever, but if we fall in love with something, we want yeah. to support it in that sense. And yeah. we, sure, sometimes a Blu-ray box that feels expensive, but yeah. if you base it on what they're going through to produce that for you, yeah. just so you can press play on Netflix, yeah. there's a lot of money gone under that. So we yeah. find shows that we fall in love with, we might not even open them. We have Blu-rays at home, we haven't even opened because we've seen them all. all right. We just yeah. want to have our voice heard and buy that set and say, yeah. you know, we we wanted to, you know, we well, want to Well, there's also the thing, it. of course, that somewhere down the line, who knows, could be years down the line, you say, have to watch that again. Which we do a lot of that. You know, we, we spend years and then we'll jump back and start over at Game of Thrones and what, you know, so it's it's a great show for that know, as well. You know what would be fascinating is I've never done it, but I suppose I could have is at your age and I to look at something and say, you know, this is great because you can see that it's cutting edge and all the rest yeah. is state of the art. You can see that there's big investment in it. Mm -hmm. But in thirty years time, yeah, to look at it again given what might happen in the next 30 years. It's sort of be fascinating, you know, yeah, to sort yeah. of think, Jesus Christ, yeah, look how so things have changed. Of course, you know? yeah, yeah. You know? Some kids, if I have kids, their kids will have no idea what sort of things we used to watch yeah, and they wouldn't yeah. understand the technology, would they? Yeah, but yeah. I still go back and watch Star Wars A New Hope and I'm still blown away by it, even though I know it's cardboard and tape and everything yeah, and yeah, all that sort of yeah. thing. So it just lives on with it. When they put the extra effort in it, it just lives, it will live. I think Game of Thrones will live forever. However long it goes on, yeah. it will always be in the lore of pop culture, I think, and things well, like that. The rumor is now, I think they actually, I mean, apparently I think they announced it. Mm. They are going to do eight. Did anybody else hear that? Yeah, two more. Well, two strictly, more. Two strictly more, it should it be seven because to date it's been one for every book. And George always said that he was going to write, you know, to complete the story as he saw it, there were seven books in it. So six is in train now, they've started filming six. Mm -hmm. And my, uh, I was saying, I think, wasn't I saying to you, my suspicion yeah. is that they'll bring six, both the book and the series out coincident with each other, I think, so that all the things that appear to be loose ends at the moment 
will, you know, between the book and the series, will probably be tied up in some way or clarified, you know, next spring. Um, I mean, if George gets the end of seven, I mean, at the rate he's been going, who knows whether it'll take two years, three years, or whether he'll have time to do it full stop, because George is a fair age now. But um, somebody said, and I think they've gone public with it, that they're now talking about doing eight. And if they are talking about doing eight, my suspicion is that what that George might be under pressure to get his final book, seven, out, coincident with the final series, if the final series is eight, you know, I, I don't know, you know. And then there's also a rumour running around, I don't know if they'll do it or not, but that, that there might be a prequel, have you heard that? I've heard that one as well, yeah. No. You never know. Again, yeah. it's, they can do anything with it, couldn't they? they well, I mean, it's proved so popular, I guess. What's always difficult if you are the creators of something like that is, you know, it's so successful. Why would we not keep it running? And also saying, this is the right time to stop. You know what I mean? It's always yeah, a yeah. hard one, you know, yeah. but at some point that, that decision is yeah. also going to have to be made. Whenever I hear things like that, I always think back to the show Lost, because I know that the, the writers and producers of Lost had a perfect three-season arc, and yeah. they thought, perfect we'll do three and it'll be great they got to yeah. season two and the studio said we're making millions and there's millions of people are watching you are yeah. not stopping at three you will continue on which is why if you watch lost in the middle it gets a bit stretched and less happening and because the studio it, said does it feel wrong right, because the writers wanted yeah. to do three which you know would have yeah. been i feel a little more even on that and did they go to four or did they go i think they how did lost end on anyone seven six seven? So, I mean, to know that the writers, the guys who came up with it, wanted yeah. to do three, and they said, we've got a perfect idea for yeah. three seasons, yeah. to then stretch it to seven. I think Game of Thrones is the opposite. I think Game of Thrones may announce, hey, we're stopping to seven, yeah. but then the clamoring and the, the uproar will be, yeah. well, we want more. Yeah. We want you to continue. So then they can either continue on, or, or bring it back and do a prequel, and there's so many characters, so many stories. It can I mean, go it will be interesting to see who wins that. Yeah, I think, actually, there's your more likely thing. Mm. You know the way, like, Fraser grew out of, uh, what do you call it? Uh, yeah. yeah. That some character or other yeah. has grabbed the public imagination mm -hmm. enough that they say, well, rather than carrying on with Game of Thrones, let's do a spin off that is right. built around that character. Right. You know, that, I mean, that's a possibility. Yeah. But um, Dan and David, who are the two principal writers, I mean, it'll be interesting to see who wins that because, I mean, obviously, money talks and the studio is, exerts huge pressure. But they're tough cookies, those two guys. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're still quite young, they're in their early 40s. Mm -hmm. Uh, but they are, you know, they've really got the bit between the teeth, I think. They are across everything. You may have all these different directors, which sometimes can be difficult because you say, well, who's actually the final arbiter of how these things work? But basically it's Dan and or David. Right. They're very much in sync. They are, one or other of them is, and we have two units running all the time. One or other of them is on some set somewhere. Right and they are the person who ultimately will decide and if a director is is saying well i've got that i'm going on i mean if they think oh, no we need something something we've missed or if they want something to go again yeah. they have the power to override and, and will and can override any director and they have the ultimate power over the the edit because it's very much their baby, right, yeah. you know. They're um, the showrunners, it's called, isn't they're it? They're the showrunners, yeah. 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 So they and, stay constant. And, and they are the, the, I mean, they are the ones who can see the, how each uh, sort of season story-wise should develop. Right. They write between them most of the episodes, although not necessarily all of them. Right. There's about two or three others who mm -hmm. are, uh, you know, sort of returning writers. 
and um, they, uh, as I say, they are the ultimate arbiter. So, I mean, I think it'll be an interesting one when you know if the studio does start to lean on them, just to see how how tough that that exchange becomes, because. Uh, they would have a very clear idea of what they want. Of course, you know? but then the studio might as well have another idea of what yeah. they want. So. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. as you say, a lot of it will be down to money, you know. Uh, of course. It's certainly, I mean, it's got to be a cash cow for yeah, yeah. the way it's going. Absolutely. Yeah. So sort of last, uh, which faction do you support? Uh, Without being uh, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, I mean, in a sense, I'm frustrated with Dan and David because they, they, they killed me off and I didn't <laughs> want them to. Uh, but, um, my feeling is really that you know you're always better to honor your story and stick to that uh, but you know obviously if people feel it's 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 a kind of a, a serious earner for them they're going to find it very hard to push it aside even they themselves may find it hard to push it aside but i think by that stage they shouldn't really be worried to be honest uh, i mean they've they've established their reputations they've established themselves in every way you know Quite clearly, on the back of this alone, so there's, there's no need for them to worry. Um, no, I, I, I think you know, if you feel we've done the journey and this is the end, then I think that's what you should do. You know, rather than saying any chance we can stretch it out for the sake of stretching it out. And I, I, as you say, I think what will happen is the audience they'll know at some point they'll say. You know, the hardest thing in the world with any series like this is if you're lucky enough to do something that really catches the imagination in year one, the first really big hurdle is can you manage to keep that ball as well in the air in year two? If you manage to get through year two and people aren't saying, oh, well, it didn't quite compare with last year, then perhaps you're up and away, you're up on the road. I think the next hardest thing is to say, when is enough enough? When should we stop this? And you know, people constantly talk about it, and they're right, I think. Try and go out the high, you know. Don't wait until you've gone over the top and you're on your way down, you know. Yeah. And I think they would be very, I, I, you know, from what I know of them, I think they would be very determined about that, you know. So it'd be interesting to see how that goes. Because a show that always comes to mind for me, very unrelated to Game of Thrones, uh, would be Only Fools and Horses. Yeah. Because I thought there was a very definitive yeah. finish to that. Yeah. And then there's like six more episodes after that. And to yeah. me, those sef extra six feel like just they should have just stopped at the stopped one. Yeah. He won the money. They got yeah. what he always said he was going to get. One day I'll be a millionaire. Now I am the end. Let yeah. it end there. Yeah, let but it, it breaks my heart to know that the characters actually didn't win. Yeah. They did end up in a, in a much worse off place. Yeah. Yeah. So I would think, again, that I would hope that they would get a nice even bow tie on it. Yeah. Yeah. Just let it finish nicely. And then maybe if you wanted to do a prequel, which would be better for yourself, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, that would be nice. Um, you know, I think a prequel wouldn't hurt the yeah. story that's already finished. Yeah. You know, because if they finish season eight, and then the worst thing for me is always when they wait years and years. Yeah. You know, it's been four years, and now we're going to do season nine. Yeah. That's when you, you know, you. No, I, feel well like I, I, I think then, case. I think then, you know, people sub subliminally, people come and know what's probably about money, and they don't come to it with the same interest. You know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Exactly. Yeah. I think if you've let your audience go, you should sort of accept. It's gone. Let of it course. be, you know. And people will look back on it with affection then, or will look back on it and remark about how, you know, how special that was, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, the classic, in some ways, is uh, Faulty Towers. Yeah, perfect. They only made, they only made, what was it, 12 episodes? 12, yeah. And they said enough, and they could have gone on for double that easily, you know, people yeah. loved it. And if it was an American enough. sitcom, it would have been 11 seasons, wouldn't
they did that, they stopped it, and people still go on about it. You know, yeah, yeah. what is what are we talking about? Thirty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. See. So that's great. Any question for you, sir? Yeah, um, where Game of Thrones is obviously so rich with different characters and different plot lines going on, have yeah. you ever actually gone in and filmed something and wondered what the hell's going on with it because it's just such a big story? Uh, no. Um, see, well, backtrack. Whenever I got the job, I didn't know that it was based on books, for starters. I didn't know there was already a very popular book series, especially in America. And I was working in theatre in London at the time, and uh, I came back not really knowing the significance. I was, oh, I got a job in this thing called Game of Thrones. And um, there was a girl who worked for the house. She says, oh, I know those books. She says, I've got book one. I'll bring it into you. And I said, oh, fair enough. Um, I was actually quite surprised to know it was based on a series of books. Anyway, she brought it in. Dirty, great, sort of thick paperback tome of fantasy. Now, to me, I flicked through it, small print, no pictures, <laughs> fantasy. And I was sort of thinking, I know in some way perhaps I should read this, although mind you there are lots of actors who believe they shouldn't read the book in case it confuses them. So part of me was saying, no, I think I should read this. And another part of me was saying, oh, I'm not sure if I'm up to or really want to, or you know, how much do I like fantasy, really? So it sat on my dressing room table, winking at me for about two weeks. And I was like, I said, I should read that. Anyway, eventually, took it home, and uh, you know, I was about 20 minutes in the tube from where I was staying. I started reading it in the tube. And I got into it even on the tube. Walked into the flat, I read for another couple of hours, cooked. I thought it was great. It, it, it was really well written. It's really well written. It's really entertaining. The scale of the vision is phenomenal. The structuring of it is phenomenal. So, you know, I was hooked. And once I was hooked, I read all of book one. And I loved it. And then because I was, you know, I mean, another little sort of aside, um, I actually get killed off quite a lot in things generally, you know. Don't ask me why, because I don't really want to know, but I do. Um, you know, car crashes, gunshots, you know, whatever. So I Sean thought, you know, curse, isn't it? Uh, Sean being cursed. Sean being cursed, yeah. So uh, there's me thinking, Game of Thrones, Medieval Knights, I mean, I'll be lucky to get through this book. <laughs> well, at the end of it, I'm still alive, and I'm thinking, oh, still alive. So partly because I was enjoying it anyway, and partly because I wanted to know if I had a future, I thought, well, I'll read book two. Now, for most of the book two, I'm not there. He just returns at the very end because he's been banished, you know. But I do return at the very end of book two, so I think, well, I'm going to be in book three. So I keep on reading. Before I know it, I've read all the books and really enjoyed them. So to come back to where they started, I know the story really well because I know the books. So no matter what's going on, when I go into the scene, I know the, the general parameters of the scene uh, and what I'm usually aware of is, oh, they've done this, they've condensed it in that way, oh, they haven't brought in that character, you know, things like that. So I'm actually referencing it, referencing it back to my knowledge of the books, you know. So the surprises, if there are any, are not like, where is this going? It's like, oh, why have they done that? Or why have they got rid of him? You know, that kind of thing, yeah. you know. So. Do you have a question to I thought I saw your hand up, no? It was only a very trivial one. I've got a few, Please. but the point is, I, I came late, I'm so sorry. It's I was okay. 
trying to figure out where to go. No, the, the um, schedule's been changed. Well, so up, you mentioned um, that obviously there's very much a personalization of all the, all the props and the costumes. Yeah. Were you, did you have the opportunity to have any keepsakes? And if so, did you, did you or did you not bother? Uh, no, I, I tell you, I'd, I'd love to, to have a keepsake or two, but no, no, you don't get to keep anything. No. That's a damn shame, isn't it? That all goes back. I mean, there's a, there's kind of like a costume uh, tour goes around, I was going to say it goes around the country, but I think it goes around the world, you know, so various bits and pieces of costume are actually on, on show somewhere, um, right. uh, probably as we speak, they're on show somewhere. Um, you know... I, I knew the armorer anyway um, before we started on this. Uh, I guess if I wanted to, I could probably go back to him and say, "Look, is there any chance you can make me that sword yeah. so that I have my copy?" And I guess because that would be an arrangement between the two of us that that is doable. I don't know if there's some sort of copyright thing whereby he can't make. A full replica. He might have to make it with some slight quirk, so it's not quite the same. I don't know how much uh, rights control or copyright control they have over each and every element of the of the piece. But um, no, you're not allowed to take anything with you. Do you know if anyone did though? Any cast members slip, slip something home? Well, I don't know. No. I guess it's possible they tried. Of course. Whether they, whether they got away with it is not a matter. It'd be a bit embarrassing, wouldn't it? You've got a big role in Game of Thrones and you get pinched trying to steal your sword on the way out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not the memory you want, it is it? It'd be a bit embarrassing, you know. And now, if it was a dagger, they wouldn't know a thing. You know, you might put that down your boot and nobody would be able to I've it. always said it's easier to ask forgiveness <laughs> than permission. So. And if they discover you, then you, you know, right. you're ready. I mean, you're you're exactly. Bad. You say, you know. Oh, I'm not allowed this anymore. You're messing yeah. with here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> when, when they give you your scripts, because mm. a lot of shows you hear about secrecy and all that sort of thing, do they give you the full, here's episode 12, start to finish, or do they just give you your uh, sections you know, blocked out? I mean, things? it's fascinating how this bloody yeah. industry's going. It does my head in. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm up, I'm, well, I'm not up for something. I'm doing something. Right. Starting the week after next. That I can't say anything about. Right. And this is the way everything seems to be going now. Every time we get a script, it's like um, you have to sign a, you know, a non-disclosure agreement before yeah. you get the script. And if you read this small print of these non-disclosure agreements, uh, if they were ever to exercise it, you would be in penury for the rest of your days because basically you would be liable for underwriting the entire making of the project. You know, uh, I mean, it's dreadful. I mean, it's, it, it, it actually makes you nervous just reading because you think, God, I, I'm so responsible for so many things if I dare let anything yeah. slip. But, um, it, 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 in, in fact, this has happened, I suppose, way back probably, they, you know, with the likes of Star Wars or something, they probably did do that. But certainly when Game of Thrones started, initially, they were quite laid back about it, they were quite cavalier. I mean, I, as a member of the cast, um, got all 12 eps of episode one, although in actual fact, I think, I'm not all 12, all 10, mm -hmm. Although, in actual fact, I think I was only in four, possibly five episodes. But I got the whole nine yards, and I was able to read the whole thing. And it was just exciting to read the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, now, year two, I don't know what happened, because at year two, I wasn't on it, and I was elsewhere. So when I came back in year three, you only got the scripts in which you were involved. Your scenes, your sections. Your, your, yeah. No, you got the entire script. Right but only for the episodes in which you were involved. Right. So okay. you did get all of episode one, mm -hmm. 
and all of episode four or whatever it was. Uh, so you saw what was happening in various other storylines, but unless you were involved in that episode, you didn't get anything else. Now, apparently, they're not sending out scripts at all. You don't get the hard copy. What you get is something uh, electronic, and it is then only your scenes. And what is more is now you don't even get what we call the call sheet, which tells you what happens the next day. You used to get that handed to you as a hard copy. You don't get that either, because uh, it's another way of trying to just minimize yeah. how much information is given out. Um, and um, the, the way these things have been sent now, they've been sent through, it may vary, but there's one thing, for instance, called PICS. Mm-hmm. Which you kind of—I mean—it's so complicated to get into it. Right. And if you're not very technically literate, and I am not, it's just such a pain in the neck, you know, that you're only able to access it by this means. Yes. Because it has become so precious. Yeah. Or there's so much interest in spoilers or whatever that you—you you know—you can't be given it in any other form. I mean, somebody was telling me something about—I don't know what it was, but it was one of these sci-fi type things, I think, where. This guy inadvertently took his script home, right? And they rang him up and said, "Oh, we, you know, you, you, you seem to have gone off of your script. We need it back." So he said, "Oh, sorry, you know." And they sent a driver out. The driver picked up the script and went back. They rang him again and said, "There is a page missing." And he said, "We're going to have to come back and search your house." <laughs> Could you not? They came, a driver came back, and he was embarrassed. He's a driver, he's, yeah. you know, he's not sort of film security. No. He says, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to search your house for this copy. Mm-hmm. Searched high and low, couldn't find anything, and they ran back. So it's not here. Then it transpired that the thing had fallen down, you know, between the seats or something, the vehicle, you know. And it was fine, and everybody was happy. But it was that paranoid. Yeah. And you saw. You know, it's not Fort Knox, you know, no, we're not about to blow up the Empire State Building. What, what is all this? You know, it's, it's a bit of fiction, for God's sake. But that's the way it's going. And why would this working actor risk his career for one page of a script? Yeah, you know, yeah. You know. I don't remember who it was. I heard on a podcast somebody talking about how he read a script, but somebody brought the script to his house in a briefcase, yeah. sat beside him while he read the script, and when he was done, put it back in the briefcase and left. Yeah, that was probably something sci-fi. Because that they, does know. not surprise me, and especially in the world of sci-fi, that seems course, to be yeah. the way they all think. Yeah, I don't quite know why there's such paranoia about it, but that seems to be the they're way. They're so scared of us finding out that Luke and Leia are allegedly related. Spoiler alert! <laughs> that they're just you know they're just so. Is, this, is this the latest allegation? Is it? That, that, that was or the is very this old just one. You making it up? No, it was a very old <laughs> allegation. I think that was probably one of the first ever spoilers, wasn't it? Empire Strikes Back, you find out the two characters that you think are going to fall in love are actually siblings. Oh, right, right, right. That was probably the first spoiler, wasn't it? You know, people uh-huh. go out talking in the pub about it and things like yeah, that, you know, yeah, yeah. That, that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead, you had to... I was going to say, surely the, the biggest spoiler is no out, Luke, I am your father, isn't it? That goes before that. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, again, that's another one where you're like, I don't want to know that. I get, I'm somebody who gets very angry about spoilers. I really yeah. need to relax about it. But yeah. if I even read the slightest thing, he's wearing blue in this episode. I'm like, oh, come on! I wanted to see what he was wearing. Why do you have to tell me? But you know, it's sort of fascinating how different things, you know, different agendas develop. The soaps here, the whole agenda is to get the spoilers out. Mm-hmm. You think about it. You know, you know before you see whatever episode of Kari or whatever, 
this is what happens. They seem to generate the interest yeah. by telling you in advance what mm. happens. Whereas, you know, with the sci-fi world, it's the inverse of that, you know, God forbid anybody should know anything, anything. you know, until it happens to them, you know. Yeah. I mean, I don't quite understand the, the, why the soaps do that, because uh, I always think it's almost more interesting to be taken by surprise. But um, they do, I mean, they seem to think, and I guess it's true, that they do generate more business by actually, you know. Mysterious. Yeah. So I remember the first time I ever realized that a film was filmed under a different name. So the scripting and the yeah, everything yeah. is done under different titles so that it doesn't get leaked. And when I saw that, I think it was Man of Steel was shot under the name Red Sun. Yeah. And that just, I was so confused by it because I was just like, that's so much effort to go to. Yeah, yeah. If you get to set that day and go, hey, I'm, I'm, here, I'm here filming Superman. No, they're not filming that here. Well, think of it, they're the, the biggest, sort of one of the biggest sort of like uh, film stroke television production companies in Britain now is called Working Title. For that very reason, exactly, you, you have a working title. Exactly, um, yeah. That's not necessarily the title under which the thing is eventually going to go. Now, does Game of Thrones operate under one? Or is it no, I mean, Game of Thrones operates under the title Game right, of Thrones. Yeah. It's never had a working title sort of thing. But this thing that I'm going into now, that's well, precisely okay. what it is. You know, I mean, it, not only does it have a, a working title, but the uh, the company name has a working title. Right. So it's just complete so, mystery. So, you know, when you, when you read it, you think, well, this is nothing to do with film. You know, this is right. something to do with haulage or something. You know what oh, I mean? Of course, you know, yeah, you yeah. Know. So, it's bizarre. Now, did you find at your height of Game of Thrones that it was a hindrance at all? Whereby other companies wouldn't want to work with you because you were so involved heavily in something so popular? Um, no, I mean, I think, if anything, uh, Game of Thrones, there's no question that Game of Thrones has been a, a plus if you're involved in it. Mm -hmm immediately there's more interest in you because, oh, well, you're in that, and that is such a big success. And to some degree, they think they can trade off the fact that you've been in it. Um, I mean, I would certainly, and certainly in terms of America, I mean, I would have had uh, interest from a number of American sources for work, mm -hmm. which prior to Game of Thrones, I would not have had, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's very much conditioned by the fact that you know, they, there's people in the industry out there now who know who I am and would sort of say, oh, he might work for this, he might work for that. Yeah. Before Game of Thrones, they wouldn't have a clue. Yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't have a clue about them, you know. And even things like, I mean, I'm going off to do a, a theater show in Canada in the, new, the beginning of the new year. Uh, I was telling Rachel that. And, yeah. I mean, I'm under no illusions that probably the reason why I'm doing that is because they can trade on, on Game of Thrones of course, yeah. uh, history. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's the way, unfortunately, the industry works. You know, yeah. whatever your ability or otherwise, the fact that you can be, you know, people can say he has a history with X, he has a history with Y, and those things are seem to be significant. Mm -hmm. You know, that ups your profile and ups your potential to get work, you know. Especially, obviously, for somebody so visible, heavily on scene, on camera. Yeah. Because when I sat down with Ross Mullen, who's done some, you know, creature yeah. work on yeah. Game of Thrones, yeah. he found, he said that he found he had the opposite experience. Yeah. Whereby his agent would put him forward for things and they'd go, well, is he still attached to Game of Thrones? Because I'm not interested. All ah, right, right. Because they were so scared that Game of Thrones is going to ring him and go, we need the White Walker again. Yes, yeah. You know, so for yeah. him, he had the opposite effect, but maybe yeah. not being a face in the fact that he's behind yeah. masks and everything yeah. at the time. Yeah. But I know he had mentioned to me that he had the opposite effect, where he couldn't get work or couldn't even get looked at because they were so worried that Game of Thrones was going to call him back again and he'd have to run away and do that again. But then you have the other weird thing. There's a, uh, there's a guy in Game of Thrones called uh, Ian White 
And Ian is, I think he's seven foot two. So he's huge, huge tall man. And he fills his build, but he's, you know, he's a slim build. So he seems even taller. Mm -hmm. Now, Ian started out, um, I think he might have started out as a white walker. Uh, then the first mountain uh, was let go. So for a period, he was the mountain. And then he was a giant. He's actually played, and he must be rather unusual in this regard, he's played about four parts in Game of Thrones, but because most of the time he's masked in some way or another, he's been able to do that. But it's his very singularity in terms of his build that makes that possible because you know, Game of Thrones is a bit like a rugby team. Every size fits. You know what I mean? It's great that way. You know, I mean, you can be small, you can be tall, you can be wide, you can be thin. It doesn't matter. There are parts, no matter what sort of shape or size you come in, yeah, which is kind of it's great in that sense as well. You know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very democratic. If you like. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you, can you go ahead, my friend. How do you get into uh, acting on Game of Thrones? Like uh, that. I mean, it's 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 a bit like of a lottery. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, there are certain people who, for instance, by example, uh, when this would have started, <coughs> they would have said, "We need certain people to front it up." we need certain iconic names. So the likes of Sean Bean, especially Mark Addy also perhaps, but certainly Sean Bean, a very well-known leading man uh, with a certain kind of ruggedness about him, uh, needs to be there to front it up. A high profile, not just locally, locally meaning Britain, but internationally. Um, we need somebody like that. And because we're going to kill him off, you know, in the first series, but we're hoping to run him for years, we're going to have to pay him top dollar. I have no idea what he could pay, but I'm sure he could pay very well because, in a sense, it needed him, to, somebody like him, to set it up. Um, so he'd have been headhunted. Usually, it's fair to say, the top half dozen in your cast list would have been headhunted. Uh, they'll have had certain people in mind that have gone after them. But then you have, because with this, you have quite a few significant characters who are young, there have been people who would have been fine. I mean, Emilia, for instance, who plays Daenerys, was only a year out of drama school. She was fine, you know what I mean? Uh, auditions, 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 and at some point they said, that's the one we want, you know? Uh, all the very young ones who are now all doing very well as, as you know, you know, sort of emerging film actors like I, um, Joffrey, although Joffrey has actually decided he's not going forward with the business, but Jack Lees and people like that, they, um, they would have been found, albeit that they might be significant numbers on the cast list. And then people like myself, uh, your agent brings you and says, they want to see you for Game of Thrones, and you go in and you get seen, and you you read for them, and then at some point they either read, call you back and read you again, or they say, "Great, you know, you're it," uh, and and that's what happens. I mean, where it gets difficult, and it does get difficult, is when when things come in from the states. They, rather than just kind of like doing a blanket thing. They will go to certain agents. They won't go to every agent. 
And that may be down to the whim of the casting director. Casting directors have quite a lot of power. And they may say to an agent, I want to see you know, X, Y, and Z from you. And another agent may say, I've got, I've got some very good people here. I don't care if they're good people. I don't want to see them. For, for whatever reason, they're not interested in that agency. And they may say the agency hasn't had enough profile in their minds for, for seeing people. Load of bullshit, but that's, you know, that's, that's the way it works, you know? Um, and then when you get in there, uh, sometimes what happens is you, you go in and you're, I mean now, in fact what's happening even in the last three or four years is there's a lot more what they call self-taping, where you, you just do a tape at home and send it to people, you know, because you've been asked, not, not arbitrarily, because you've been asked to. But in that case, you know, I went into a, a studio in London or a casting director's office in London and I did, I did it on tape for a team of people, but none of whom was core director or, or core showrunner or anything like that. And in fact, when I went in, I actually read for three parts. And then at a certain point, I was asked to come back in reading for one part with uh, David Denioff there, who's one of the showrunners. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I was cast. You know. So, so it, it is a process. I beg your pardon? Who would do the two you're reading for then? Mormont right. and Tywin. Mormont and Tywin. Now, at that stage, in fact, I can't remember now, Charles Dance was cast sometime after because Tywin does not appear at the beginning of the series. In fact, I'm not even if, if he appears before the end of series one. Uh, but he obviously, he, when he appears, he's a key character. So, at that stage, they were they were general casting for Tywin. I think at a later stage, I don't imagine, for instance, that Charles Dance would have been called in to read for them. I think at a later stage, they've decided, who do we want for Charles Dance, or who do we want for Tywin, and they've gone to him and offered it to him. Do you know what I mean? Because Charles Dance is a pretty high profile. Uh, so, but at that stage, they were reading for it. So, uh, but I can't remember now, some of you guys might remember exactly when Tywin comes into the picture, but it is some distance into the series, you know. It was near the start of uh, season two, was it? It could be we near the start of season two or at the end of season one, I'm not 100% yeah. sure. Uh, I have a feeling it him. might have been season two. Yeah, as he's chopping up meat, he's speaking to him. He's skinning the deer, isn't he? Yeah, skinning the deer. Yeah. That's when he's first introduced. Yeah. And, it, and it shows him as this authoritative, powerful yeah. figure yeah. straight away. So, yeah. Well, they read me, as you say, for... for uh, Barris and Mormont, which James Cosmic played, and uh, and uh, Tywin, you know. So, interesting combo. You know. So I imagine casting is such a long process, isn't it? Because they may love you, but then yeah. they also have to see how you stand up against character B, C, and D. And yeah, sure yeah, they have to kind of say, do these make them? sense together? Of course, you know. Yeah, you know yeah. It's uh, heartbreaking as the artist, though, to just sit and wait all the time. And well, you know, I, I give you an example. I have a son who's 26. He's in the business. And he was saying to me the other day that he reckons he'll probably uh, go back to it. He went to university and threw it up and then went into the acting game. He says, that he, I think I'm going to go back to university mm -hmm. now. And he's doing all right, you know what I mean? And I said, why? And he said, I know what interests me. And he said, I, I, I like this business, you know, and I mean, he does like it, he's very good in it, but he could actually, I mean, he's, I think he could be a very good director and he writes as well, so I mean, he's got a number of strings to his bow. But he said, 
I don't want to be in a business where, you know, I work at somebody else's whim. Right. And it's a very fair point. You know, I mean, people look sometimes at actors and they oh God, that must be a great life. If it's working for you, it is great. You know, it's it's very nice. You know, people say, Oh, come and do this, come and do that. It's lovely because you've got enough visibility, enough cachet that people offer you work and it's kind of exciting because today you're here, tomorrow, where am I going to be? I don't know, but it's going to be somewhere different. You know, I'm never going to get caught in the rut, if you like, of, of a regular job that goes on indefinitely year on, year on, you know. Um, so if it's working for you, it's great. The reality is, and this applies to lots of people who are really good actors, uh, it just doesn't happen. You don't get the lucky break. Uh, and and it, you you muddle through, but you are at, you know at everybody's beck and call. Yeah. And you know I said to Matthew when he went into it, I said you know if you want to go into it, fine. I said, but you know realize it ain't a meritocracy. Luck plays a big part, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and there's no guarantee. There is no guarantee. Even if you've got ability, there's no guarantee that you will get security out of it. You know what exactly, I mean? Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, now he's saying, you know, I want to do something that I know I'm interested in, that I want to do, where I'm in control of, of it, course. or at least I feel I'm in control right. of it, where, mm -hmm. rather than sitting there thinking, is anybody going to ring? Is there anything I could do to get my name out there or push myself around, you know? Um, how do I get through this month and pay the bill? You know, all those boring things. How do, I, how do I afford to raise a family? You know, there's all those sorts of considerations. Yeah. And in that sense, it is a cruel business because yeah, it doesn't have much security. Now, that's in our world. In America, it's probably the same. But if you get, if you get work in America, you te generally tend to get much, much better paid accordingly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Europe, in a lot of countries, it is more like a sort of a civil service job where you can be attached to I mean there's lots of German actors for instance who work in the theatre mm -hmm. but it's like working in the civil service in the sense that you can get attached to a theatre you can be there for a long time you actually get paid a proper wage and you actually get a pension scheme and all the rest in the same way that you would if you were in public service or right. something like that yeah. you know and you can realistically be a theatre actor and make a decent living and, and, and do what most people do raise a family whatever you know yeah, yeah. But the way it works in this business, it is very happenstance. You know, you get lucky, you don't get lucky. You know? Yeah, of course. You know, and there, you know, I'm not a religious person at all. But if you think about it, if you're going to be an actor, there is an element of faith. You know, of course, somehow or another, it'll work for you. You know. Mm -hmm. um, your, you mentioned your son. Is, is he going to lean towards the directing, writing, or is he leaving the business altogether? I think. Uh, I think what will happen is I think he probably will go back to university and I think uh, he'll probably in that case, I mean who knows, I think you're right yeah. and uh, I think he may well direct students and, and perhaps that will satisfy that kind of yeah. dimension of him anyway, you know, but he'll have the security of being in a world that makes sense to him, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know, It's it's, I mean. There's a it's bit more control being the writer-director, isn't there? A bit. Yeah, yeah. Because you get to more. write it and decide when you want to make it. Yeah. And you got to find somebody to give you the money to do it. Yeah. I suppose. So he may have that more element of control in that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever fancied yourself with that way? Any, any I've done a bit of everything yeah. because you kind of have to. I mean, I direct quite a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm, I've produced in that I've sort of like, you know, run theatre companies and mm -hmm. things like that. that. Because at some point, you, all of these things may be things you have to do. 
Uh, I've directed on camera but not for broadcast. I'm now trying to get together a film in a role of producer, which to be honest, I hate. I hate it. And as soon as I can walk away from that, I will. Uh, because try to raise money, especially for films, is a nightmare. Yeah, of course. But because um, I would like to direct something on camera for broadcast, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, so, no, I mean, at some point, uh, you know, just depending on time and circumstances, you turn you turn your, your attention to anything and everything, you know? Of course, yeah, yeah. You know? Absolutely. And I have actually, I haven't written, um, I haven't written a play script, but I have a one-man show that I've done that, uh, that I have created, if you like. I mean, nothing in it, apart from links, is written directly by me. But the choice of what is in it and how it's put together sure. and the structuring of it as a theatrical piece mm -hmm. is mine. Yeah. And so I've written that, I've played it, and I've published it. You know. Yeah. Did you like the freedom of being able to put that together for yourself? Did you like that? Yeah. You yeah. I, 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 you know, it, what's interesting about it is, I mean, that's not something I did because it was going to earn me a lot of money. I'm like, I it didn't necessarily. It's something I did because it's an interesting way of challenging your head. Of course. You know, and I mean, this is another thing. You know, when you work as an actor, I mean, you're very tunnel visioned. Uh, because you're thinking about what you have to do and the relationship between you and the people that you're directly working with. But when you're working as a writer, you're working as a director, it's a much bigger picture. You're sort of like dealing with the whole agenda. You're trying to put together all the different pieces. Yeah. You're using your head in a different way. And that's exciting. You know, it's just creatively exciting to say, I'm not riding exactly the same horse today. I'm on a different horse. Yeah. And in actual fact, I'm, I'm doing hurdles, I'm not doing the flats, you know, mm -hmm. whatever it might be. There's just a sense of, it's a different challenge, you know, and it's a good way to sort of like use your head. Of course, you know. keep your brain fresh. Yeah, yeah. Any, uh, any final comments, questions, guys? Don't ask him about the next project, because he's not going to tell us. <laughs> no, I can't tell you about that, unfortunately. Yeah. So that, cool. Right. One question, are you definitely dead? In well, put it this way. I haven't been told otherwise. Right. And uh, I just think because it's only question marks over the characters, let's say Sandor Quigain and um, oh, else was there? The mountain. We don't know for certain he's dead. Uh, the mountain. Oh no, the mountain's dead. But I, I agree with you. The hound. Even even Jon Snow is like, is he dead? Is he? I mean, we've got that position in the books what? where he could go either way. I mean, and, you know, I mean, if it, if you weren't definitely dead, would they have told you? Do you think? Uh, if I if I wasn't definitely dead, would yeah. I mean, it's like it's like it's a chance to call you back next season. No, yeah. I mean, I would love it if, if you know Bobby Hewitt did sort of like resurrect, but you know. <laughs> uh, so glad you made you the know. JR reference. <laughs> <laughs> the truth of the matter is, I think I'm gone. I think you know. I even felt it when we were doing it. I felt why do they have to show this scene with the corpse? Yeah. <laughs> they don't show the scene with the corpse. Who knows? But as soon as they put the corpse out, like. Damn you, you bastards! You, you've definitely killed me off. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I was really hoping that that didn't happen, but it did. Right. So I think I'm out of it, and I've been given no reason to think otherwise. So that's that's life. I I actually feel, and I'd love to see him come back. I think he's a great character. I feel the hound could come back, and I'd love to see him come back. Mm -hmm. um, and he's a great guy, actually, Roy. Uh, he's a good guy. Um, John Snow. I think, you know, simply because of the way that whole story is shaping, I mean, who knows where it's going to go eventually, but simply because of where it, how it's shaping and simply because of how central that character is to how it's shaping, I personally feel, I know nothing, I personally feel he has to come back. 
So I think if he is, quote, dead, I think he will be resurrected, you know. But I don't know. Right. You know? But in, in reality, in our previous Q&A, John had mentioned, obviously, that uh, one little line in the script can change anything. Yeah. So you, you just never know. Something as simple as, I thought he was dead. Yes, yeah. Could yeah. resurrect any character from anywhere because if, that's, if they say it on, on the script, yeah. then that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. So you, you never know. There, yeah. There's always that opportunity. There's always that chance if the show keeps going. You never, you know. never know. You never Absolutely. know. You never know. Live and hope. Live they could hope. cross you over with Walking Dead and you come back as a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> that would be season 11 is when they cross over with Walking Dead. <laughs> and they've run out of ideas and they cross over with another show. Any final comments, guys, before we uh, re release release you? I believe we have a young lady for a photo with you in the chair. Oh. Very good. Absolutely. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Great. All right. Great. Well. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking thank with you. you. Thank you for doing this with us. All right. So there it is. Me busting my Q and A cherry, as it were. Um, it, it, I, I, you know. Again, as we said before, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. He's a he's a gentleman to do that with us. Um, really, really cool. Any closing thoughts on that uh, that talk, that chat? Well, not only that, it, as you say, he was just such a gent. Afterwards, I had actually a long conversation with him about Northern Ireland because my mom's from over there. And uh, it's just all of the people, uh, him included, were just so personal. They'd come up and they'd just chat to you as if they were chatting to a friend and just there was no snobbery about it, which I always appreciate from people who who don't necessarily have to be as generous with their time when they are. It's it's great. Yeah, absolutely. So that's going to be it for this episode of Get Geeked, but you're getting doubly done this weekend or this week. You're getting twice. You're going to get another one right after this, which is going to have our TV and film panel which is where i sat down with john chalice john altman and the wonderful virginia hay uh you know from eastenders only fools and horses uh farscape to name a few uh so we sat down we had a great chat which i thought was amazing i think virginia hay should host her own podcast uh by the way um because she's just so yeah. great at drawing stories out and conversationalist and it's really really cool to listen to uh this one i'm in even less but i'm not sure which day we recorded so i don't know if it's the one where i embarrass myself or not i think that it might be though so my listeners will thoroughly appreciate that so for myself matt yep sorry just to, to before you wrap up just to remind everyone because uh, I, I said it in the intro that uh, if you go to the indie mac user blog uh, that's indiemacuser.co.uk not only do they have their write-up of the event but they also have videos from it as well which you can also find on the gallifrey stands uh, page on facebook so um you can get videos of a lot of these chats which we had as well excellent i hope that, i just hope there's not video of me fanboying to to boise <sighs> <sighs> But anyway, my name is Matt, MF and Lees, as always. Dr. Squeeze be my guest this week. Thank you for being here, sir. Uh, he is from the Gallifrey Stands podcast, which I want you all to go away and subscribe to. Um, and uh, any closing thoughts for this little brief episode here, sir? Uh, yeah, again, only thanks to everyone who's at GeekFest, uh, the cosplayers, the vendors who are just so lovely to me and my wife who are there uh, from dossiescharms.co.uk. We were selling some jewelry as well as uh, doing the podcast. Uh, to the Andy Mac user blog were, were awesome. Um, and just, just everyone was amazing too. And of course, to the, the organizers such as Shane and to yourself for doing those panels. You were, you were marvelous, Matt. Oh, thanks. Thanks very much. It was nice. Uh, it's nice to hear that because, again, I, I had no idea what I was really doing. I just kind of went into it with, you know, balls out, shall we say. So, And thank you for, for letting me help 
you know, bring the uh, clips out to people so that, you know, that meant a lot to me. Yeah, no, that's that's all you. I mean, I was more appreciative of that because I, I didn't have the ability to record them. So you're the reason they're not lost. So, you know, thank you for that. Uh, and I, I shout at, I, sh- I shouted to you, not shouted to you, but went to you a few times during the panels as well because it made me feel more yeah. comfortable that there was another podcaster sitting there. That may sound cheesy, but the fact that another podcaster was in the room, I, I, I made me feel more comfortable when I had nothing to speak about. I was just like, I'm going to go to the other podcaster because he's used to BSing on the fly as well. Well, I can't wait to, to join you for some more panels next year as well. Sounds great. All right, so that's it for this Get Geeked, but go ahead and hit refresh on wherever you get your podcast because there's probably two of these gems this week. Brought to you, as always, by Sin City Comics. I'm Matt Lees. He's Dr. Squee. Get Geeked. We'll see you next time.